0: Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I'm delighted to welcome Sona and Tom. Sona and Tom, could I ask you to introduce yourselves, tell us what you do at Software, and maybe an interesting fact about yourselves?
1: I am a senior product manager at Software. I've been here for about 18 months now, and it's been fantastic. And an interesting fact about myself is that I used to be a radio presenter when I left university.
0: No wonder you're such a pro guest on the podcast then.
1: <laughs> I didn't I shouldn't have revealed that actually. <laughs> I, that's me.
2: <laughs> I'm Tom Riley, I'm a delivery manager at Software. I've actually been at Software for maybe 15 years or something like that. Wow, which is a long time. In terms of an interesting fact I once appeared on the Channel 5 game show Brain Teaser. Incredible. What kind of questions do they ask on Brain Teaser? It's mostly word games. There's a small general knowledge crossword as well.
0: Amazing. Did you win? No. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. At Software, we've been doing an increasing amount of work for the UK government. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the processes and innovations that the government use and which of these could be adopted by the private sector to help us build better software that meets user needs. So let's start by asking how has the government technology landscape changed over the last few years?
1: I mean, I think. I joined the civil service actually prior to Softwire in 2018, so a couple of years ago. And so, I, you know, I don't have that much experience with the civil service in, in government, but I think GDS probably changed the landscape quite significantly because I joined GDS when I joined the civil service. And maybe I might be a little bit biased, but I From what I understand, it was really influential in kind of setting the standard for good digital practices, for building good digital services, and actually helping government to be a lot more user-centric with everything that it does. And so I definitely saw that people who are traditionally thinking about policy and, and, you know, things like that started to actually speak the language of, you know, user-centred design, which which is quite amazing when you think about it. So I think GDS, the creation of GDS was probably quite a pivotal moment in government, I think. Okay. And so
0: just for people who haven't heard the letters GDS before, can we just explain a bit about what that was essentially?
1: Yeah. So it's the Government Digital Service. And essentially they're a department within the Cabinet Office. So the cabinet office is like, you know, the central office of government and the government digital service sits within the cabinet office. And essentially they, they own a variety of products like gov.uk um, is owned by GDS. Verify, where users can you know, verify their, their identity, that's a product that's owned by GDS. Notify, which is how government actually communicates with the public in terms of sending emails and things like that, that's owned by GDS. So they, they own this kind of suite of digital products and services. And they really treat them as if they're kind of actual commercial products. You know, they they sort of manage them in that way. They resource them in that way. And they sort of iterate on them in that way as well. So the culture at GDS is very much, you know, agile, user centricity, and that very much that kind of lean, lean startup methodology where you, you know, you fail fast, you iterate, you test hypotheses, and you take an experimental approach to things. So that's, yeah, that's a sort of very short introduction to the government digital service.
0: <laughs> but in summary, if you're using one of the current government platforms like gov.uk or like Verify, you are using something that was built by the government digital service, by the creation of this new department that essentially allowed government to start working like a technology company.
1: That's exactly right. They they sort of built these platforms from scratch and have become quite, credible having done that and I think what that's meant is that they've been able to influence other departments and actually raise the digital standard in other government departments and advise advise other government departments on how to sort of be more user-centered, how to resource their teams and what kind of skills to hire for. So it's not just kind of all on the government digital service to sort of transform rest of government that that sort of influence has really spread and they're building capability within the rest of government as well
0: kind of transforming from within i guess
1: exactly exactly and i think we see a lot of private companies and private sector organizations trying to do this where you sort of ring fence an, an innovation kind of department but we often see that not working so well and i think it would be interesting to explore kind of why that doesn't work so well in private companies And one of the theories I have is because, and and Tom definitely sort of chime in on this, but I I think when you see it in the private sector, there's a sort of expectation that this innovation department is gonna come up with something big and new and shiny and innovation is this new shiny thing when actually the way the government digital service sort of approaches innovation is very much iteratively and improving things that perhaps already exist. Of course, they've built these new products. So there is some of that kind of big transformation, but there is also this real focus on making things better. And I think that's where Tom will definitely be able to sort of talk a bit more because he's worked on some of these products and services within software.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. They, they definitely focus on a evidence based innovation approach. So they they won't just be innovating for the sake of innovating. They'll be innovating for a reason based on evidence. And that evidence may come from talking to people who are going to use it. Or that evidence may come from statistics on how people are using existing things they've got. Or even just academic research into where things that members of the public struggle to do. It's, it's all very much. Whereas I don't know if this is fair, but as Sona says, you you get a sense of private sector innovation, sometimes feeling the need to wow people with some new idea, which hasn't been heard of before, rather than just making something that is solving someone's problem. Mm, very
0: interesting. Well, like a real startup, right? The whole key, if you're actually starting a new business, is having something that solves a problem. So for this podcast, we've isolated a few of the key things that we think government are doing really well. And the first of these is the service standard. So maybe Tom, could you explain a bit what that is?
2: So this comes back to GDS being in a position to try and improve digital services across government. So they they have set out a, a standard of 14 points, which they see as best practice in digital service delivery. So that's things like uh, being agile, responding to user needs, some of the things which we touched on already. And the way that this impacts on any public sector project is that they have to follow those 14 points. And there may, for example, be an assessment at the end. So GDS would come in and just check that the project has been run in the right way and that they agree with some of the decisions that have been taken. And I think it's a it's a really interesting approach to identify what is seen as best practice and then not mandate it, but definitely by documenting it, you're encouraging everyone to follow their principles. And I think they're a very solid set of principles and they do lead to uh, developing great services for people.
0: Okay, incredible. So this is about clarity, really, at a simple level, about making it clear what's expected.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Just to give a, an example, they would suggest that when you're delivering a new service, that you do it in four different stages. So the first stage would be a discovery phase, which is finding out who would use your service and what they might want to do with it. And, and also whether there's anything that already exists that they could use or that you could build on to do it. If that has proved that there is a need for it, you'd move on to what they call an alpha which is more focused around trying to find solutions to it, so it's not coming in with a preconceived idea of this is exactly what I should be building, and this is how it should be this is how it should work. It's about trying to produce something, putting it in front of people, and then seeing how they react and just making it better in a in a low cost way. The remaining two phases are beta and live, which are more to do with making it production ready, but always alongside that, it's very much about improving as you go and making things better at every stage.
0: And so, of course, some of these things in the service standards are going to be things we come on (laughs) to of things that government are doing well. So user centred design has already been mentioned and we've actually covered this in other podcasts as well. But let's just touch briefly on why is user centred design so important?
1: Okay, well, I mean, it sounds really obvious, but I think, you know, putting users at the centre of everything is Is the key, and it's it sounds easy to do as well, but it's actually really really hard, and it's hard for traditional organisations to actually you know reposition everything they do around the user. When you've got very influential stakeholders, when you've got you know things that have historically always worked for us, when you're working in like a really kind of I don't know, I don't even know if this is ever the case now, but if you're working in a relatively stable market, it's hard. It's hard to reposition everything you do around the user, but. I think we've seen time and time again that companies that do this and really hold themselves to this are successful. And I think a lot of the startups that you see now, they are absolutely geared towards the user. Everything is driven by user needs. Everything is tested with users in reality. You know, it's all about testing and proving that what you're doing is going to work for users and it's going to add value to the user experience and and To to users' lives. And that's, again, what I think the service standard really advocates and GDS does really well in terms of government services. Everything needs to be very simple, very usable. It's not about what policy wants and what ministers want, it's about what users actually need to get their task done. And some people might look at that and go, well, these products are really boring and really simple, but actually, that's what the user wants and that's what the user needs. So that's the most important thing.
2: I agree with that, and just to add to that, I think it's worth mentioning that although some of the services do look simple, a surprising amount of work goes in has gone into that simplicity. So even around just how best to make something for a user to select their date of birth, there has been a lot of research that has gone into that, and just making it as easy for, as possible for everyone to use. The knock-on effect of that is that it basically means more people can can use the services. And again, going back to the private sector analogy, making things easier to use increases the number of people that will use them.
0: Right. Absolutely. You're increasing your reach. And exactly. the reason that this is not optional for government is that everyone is their client, you know, within the country. So something else that we also mentioned was reusing existing technology. So tell us a bit about how they, how they managed to get that through.
2: So we talked earlier about them having built certain platforms that are shared across government. So for example, Notify, if you're if you're building a government service and it needs to communicate with a member of the public, then you would want to use Notify, which will send which basically can send text messages, can send emails, can send letters to people. It's a centralized way of doing that and it means everyone's getting consistent, trusted communication from the source they know. So that's just an example of something that GDS have built with the aim of saving other people money by ensuring that they don't have to build the same functionality themselves. They use a similar approach as part of the service standard. It's very much expected that you'll look at what else has been done out there that's very similar and that you'll reuse things where you can. That might be open source things. That Another thing that GDS have done is produced something called the design system. So if you look at gov.uk you'll notice that a lot of the pages look very similar if you if you try and renew a passport you'll have a similar experience to if you try and apply for a phishing license everything will look consistent but the reason is that they have spent a reasonable amount of time creating a consistent look and feel for people and creating components that people can reuse in a way that addresses lots of common pitfalls and therefore saves everyone i guess saves people money in terms of building it but also offers a better experience to the users
0: Right. And it saves the time of finding those pitfalls again and fixing them again if you've already fixed it once.
2: Yes, that's exactly right.
0: And something we've mentioned already is being evidence driven in terms of designing services. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
2: So there's a few different kinds of evidence that are used in designing services. A lot of it comes back to the user-centered approach that we've talked about earlier. So during some of the earlier phases that, that you'll be doing a lot of talking to your users and finding out what they want, putting things in front of them. So it's not evidence in terms of numbers. It's evidence in terms of gauging people's reactions and documenting their reactions and then improving it and seeing if they have a better reaction to it. In terms of evidence later in the process, that another thing that they insist on as part of the service standard is that you have suitable analytics in your in your service, so you know, you know what type of people are using it, you know how they're using it, you know what browsers they're using, whether they're using mobile, that sort of thing. But more than those more general ones, they want to know that you have a concrete plan to measure the success of your service. So it might be that you see it as a success if 80% of people complete a particular journey. They, you, they want you to have defined that up front, which I think is different to a lot of a lot of projects that I've worked on. And the benefit of this is then you can see instantly see how well your service is doing. You can instantly see the, the benefit of any changes that you make towards what you're seeing as your key metrics. And you can use that evidence just to essentially continually improve what you've got.
1: The evidence is also kind of the sort of rationale behind the evidence based approach is to like maximize your confidence before you invest more into your service or product. So when, whenever you go through an assessment, you'll always be pushed on how confident are you and what is, what is giving you that confidence that this is, this is something that is worth building because everybody has limited resources and you know especially kind of development resources really really expensive and if things go wrong then that's if it it goes wrong in a way that's not measured approach do you know what i mean like failing is fine if it if you knew that failure would be a possible outcome but i think yeah gathering that evidence is very much about being as confident as you possibly can before you make another round of investment
2: personally i think that's a really important point i i mentioned the different phases and typically you you would pause at the end of each phase and assess what you'd found out based on the evidence you'd gathered during that phase and you'd only do proceed to the next phase if it seems like there's a need to do so if you're genuinely solving a problem for users and it'll offer value for money and there's a number of criteria to take into that i think it's a really interesting approach because it i suspect it has a positive effect on avoiding embarrassing large scale failures basically
0: Let's talk a bit about methodologies. So they've got a reputation for having a somewhat purist approach. What does that mean in practice?
1: Yeah, purists can have negative connotations to it, can't they? And actually, I think this is a reality. So for me, I, th- I think the government digital service was one of the most sort of agile environments. And um, in terms of like the lean startup methodology and you know they really sort of try and use that as 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 their guiding principle as the ways of working and because that's a proven sort of way to build products that are successful and even reading the kind of product bible inspired by marty kagan from the silicon valley product group like when i read that book i feel like that's that's the bible for for gds like the 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 methodologies that he describes the way to structure your teams the way to prove your hypotheses and, and test your hypotheses and users that whole thing is is sort of is, is how sort of gds works but at the same time i think a lot of people do find that you know that that kind of works in a startup sort of environment but in more established institutions like government or even like companies that have been around for a long time i think taking that very product centric view can sometimes leave people feeling like they're second to the products. And I think it's a really skilled task and a a fine balance between, you know, making sure you're building really great products and making sure that your people are happy while you're building those products.
2: One thing I'd add to that is that GDS do recommend you use Agile. They don't, which I think is a really great idea for projects where, from what I've described, you're obviously iterating quickly in response to what people have said and that sort of thing. It almost mandates an agile approach. But when it comes to a GDS assessment, they're not too prescriptive about exactly how you've done your agile approach. So so long as you're doing things in an iterative way, you're continually improving that side of things, Then then the assessors will be happy with that.
0: And something else that links into this whole way of doing things that, We really respect as a as a way of building software is having a clearly defined product or service owner. So having a person whose job it is to assimilate all of this information you're getting in from users and potential users and the tech team and bringing it all together. Why does that make a difference?
1: Yeah. So again, I, I saw this work really well in most cases. I think when you've got a small, dedicated, full time multidisciplinary team that is trying to solve a problem and is empowered to solve that problem they, they sort of a team that's that's um, comprised of different specialisms the product manager can really help in sort of coordinating all those specialisms making sure that that coordinating all those specialisms and at the same time protecting the team from from the business and you know the stakeholders and, and any kind of pushback that's coming towards a team i've seen product managers do a really good job of like Dealing with that stuff so that the, the development team and the product team can actually just focus on building the product. At the same time, it's really important that when you do have a product owner or product manager, the team still has to feel ownership of whatever they're building. So I think that's the other sort of balance that a good product manager will, will have to try and strike. But having someone who is empowered to make the decisions about the product and at the same time sort of protect the team, I think is a really, really great. And, and, and I've seen it work
2: really well. Yeah. And speaking speaking as a delivery manager, I think just having having a single person who, as Sonna says, the key word being empowered to make decisions about the product is really important and a really helpful, helpful person to have because they can make decisions that need to be made when they need to make them. And, you know, you've got a single person to go to.
0: I think you also get a clarity of vision, don't you, when it's going through a single human being rather than, for example, a committee making a decision. I think that really, really adds to it. Fantastic. So finally, let's just talk about accessibility. This is another key linchpin, I guess, of government tech.
2: Yeah, accessibility is something that it's taken very seriously within any digital service, because obviously it has to be available to anyone to be able to use it. Going back to the GDS assessment again, you you would not pass a GDS assessment unless you had demonstrated that you had proven that your service could work with a variety of users. So GDS have some great things working towards this. I mentioned the design system that already copes with a lot of common accessibility issues and you don't need to worry about them. They've also got an accessibility lab you can go to. And if you go there, they've basically got tools that can make it seem as if you are a user of various assistive technologies. But I don't think accessibility just comes down to, like obviously Obviously, one part of accessibility is screen readers and things like that. Another part of accessibility is just making sure that the service is as easy to use as it can be. And it's really interesting that the, the user-centered approach again really helps with just boiling everything down to the final output that is always most popular with the users is the one that is easiest to use people want to be able to just sit down and click through something and it'll just work and they understand it at all stages of the process. Like I said earlier, it's really hard to get things so simple that they just work. You have to to do a surprising amount of work to simplify everything down to something which people can understand at first glance. Basically, I think it's something that government does really well in terms of making things available to everyone.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. That's kind of a whistle-stop tour through the things that we really respect about how government does technology. And I suppose it links back to the first point that we made at the start, that actually setting out your vision and setting out what's important and saying, these are the things we are not going to compromise on. So I think we've definitely come across other organisations that maybe pay more lip service to accessibility and say, of course we care about it, but then when it comes to the crunch, the testing isn't done and the standards aren't maintained. So thank you so much, Sona and Tom. It's been fantastic to chat through this. It's certainly been a great learning journey for us at Software to be involved in this evolution of government tech. And we've applied a lot of these principles onto our other projects. If you use any of these techniques when you're developing your next piece of software, drop us a line on Twitter at Software UK and tune in next time to Software Tech Talks.